The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, truly you are the God who takes us in needy, helpless, weary sinners. Lord, we were totally against you. We wanted nothing to do with you, but you wooed us and you want us over. God, this morning we do cry for help. We cry for the rest that only you can bring. Lord, we cry for the help that only you have. We cry for the fountain of living waters and the bread of eternal life that we so desperately need. So will you meet us there this morning, Lord? Meet us, nourish us, help us to see Christ truly as beautiful. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. My name's Ryan. Uh, my name's not Kyle Myers. I told you Kyle Myers was going to preach this week, and then uh, we switched things. We knew there was going to be one week here in the summer where we would not do the Minor Prophets, but we would do a summer in the Psalms. I thought it was going to be next week, but we switched it. So I'm here this morning. If you came for Kyle Myers, come back next week, and uh, we'll enjoy Psalm 27 together today. So uh, Psalm 27, let's, let's jump right in. I mean, this psalm is uh, it's wonderful. Uh, it, it's also, um, it's life-giving. It also deals with some of the heaviest things that we face in our lives. And so uh, it's not something that I, I want to take lightly at all. So let's all, let's all gear up and dive into Psalm 27 and, you know, brace yourself for God to deal with some of the most uh, intimate, challenging, difficult areas of your heart, because he, he may do that through Psalm 27. So get ready. Um, let's dive in. Psalm 27, friends, has been for me a life preserver when I feel like I am drowning in darkness 
and despair, uh, when I feel defeated, and when I feel alone, and it can be that for any and every one of us. Uh, the superscription is a psalm of David. Now, we, we don't know the circumstances of David's life when he wrote this psalm, but we do know a lot of what David was experiencing personally when he wrote this psalm. We know that David felt alone. We know that David felt afraid. We know that darkness, not light, characterized David's inner world. We, we know that he felt a pointed sense of unsafety right? He needed a stronghold. We know that David felt forsaken, not only by father and mother, but by God himself. He felt like God was angry at him, like God had been fed up with David. We knew that there was all kinds of dangers and threats from without. There was armies encamped against him. David was filled with fear, darkness, uh, maybe what we would call shades of depression or anxiety, things that we really battle with today. David was feeling when he wrote this song. Again, we don't know the circumstances or the details of his life, but he gives us a pretty good picture of what he was facing within, don't we? Just by by having Jake read this psalm for us, we get this sense that he needs God to be his light because he's experiencing a whole lot of darkness right now. He needs God to be his salvation because what he's experiencing is a sense of acute lostness. That was his experience. When darkness descends on you and me, we don't know how we're going to make it through. When darkness and despair and fear is what grips us on the inside, I don't know if you're like me, but I feel like I don't know if I'm going to make it through this valley. I don't know how I'm going to get to the other side. And we look at those older men and women in the faith who have been Uh, seasoned by life's difficulties, losses, failures, being mistreated, and somehow all the pain and all the suffering that they've experienced, not every older Christian is like this, but we know those ones who have been seasoned in such a way that all of the pain that they've gone through, through faith in Jesus, it has made them somehow sweeter rather than sour. Can you picture those people in your mind? Maybe they're already with the Lord. Maybe it's a grandma or a grandpa who walked with Jesus. And there was something wonderfully compelling about their faith, about their life. We all know what it looks like to grow sour and hard because of life's losses and betrayals and disappointments. Right? We, I'm sure there are a myriad of examples that you can think of. You could maybe even name names of people that I don't, I don't want to grow old like that. Or we maybe don't need to look very far at all because we know exactly what it's like for us personally to grow sour and hard and numb and unfeeling to the Lord. We know what that's like. We know it all too well. That's easy to come up with those examples. But then there are those who have really walked with God, and it shows. Here's the question that Psalm 27 answers. What did they pray in private? What, what was going on between them and themselves and the Lord in secret? 
Friends, Psalm 27 is the secret prayer of that Christian you long to become. Whether it's that hero of the faith, that person you admire, that pastor from maybe your childhood. Psalm 27 is the secret prayer of that Christian that you admire, that you long to become. What if we could be a fly on the wall in the room that they shut themselves in to do business with God? Those beloved and revered men and women of the faith, maybe you're picturing them right now, grounded instead of flighty, broken-hearted, yet filled with joy, full of laughter, yet somehow profoundly serious people, acutely in tune with reality, they seem, don't they? How did they endure? How did they flourish the way they did? What did they pray when darkness and fear gripped their experience? Psalm 27 is this beautiful opportunity for us to shadow that time-tested, deeply admired believer in secret. Maybe you don't have someone in mind that you look, look up to and, and aspire to. Maybe there hasn't been a grandpa or a grandma in the faith. Maybe you're a first-generation believer, and there's been no one who's come alongside you and put their arm around your shoulder. Friends, Psalm 27 can be that for you. Psalm 27 is this beautiful opportunity to shadow them. And what we see as we look at Psalm 27 over and over is what I'm calling defiant faith. David embodies a defiant faith in Psalm 27. While darkness and fear and anxiety might have been what David felt, while temptation and lostness and anxiety might have been what David felt, we also know that he responded to his circumstances and to his feelings with this defiant faith. And when we feel alone, when we feel lost, when we feel fearful that, that He won't hold us fast, defiant faith is the way to walk with God through that valley to the other side. I want you to see that this morning. But what is this defiant faith so clearly demonstrated in Psalm 27? It's like standing in a room full of, uh, not you guys, but imagine me standing in a room full of evildoers, men who are looking to eat up my flesh, looking at them right in the face and saying, of whom shall I be afraid? Looking at a, an army that is sieging against me, encamped against me, and looking out and asking the question, of whom shall I fear? See, it's not a like a, the, the question that David's asking isn't a, hmm, whom should I fear today? Like, I'm a fearful person. I need another prospect for fear. No, it's, he's, a, he's a little bit gritty. He's a little bit, there's, a, there's a, almost a cockiness to this. He's, he's a little bit fed up. Whom shall I fear? Show me. Show me the person that, that I should fear in light of all of God's promises. In light of all that God is for me, whom shall I fear? You see that there's a tone to this kind of faith that David's embodying that maybe we have never embodied before and that David's calling us into. That's what this defiant faith is. It's aggressive. It's gritty. It's a come what may kind of faith that is, 
is freed from circumstances and freed from feelings and freed from temptations that militate against us and against the truth of the gospel. We just get fed up with being bullied around by certain temptations and fears and anxieties enough to embody this kind of defiant faith. I've usually heard the adjective belligerent only with respect to drunkenness. He was a belligerent drunk. We often hear people say, have you ever heard the term belligerent describing someone that's not drunk? I think that's strange. That's just a, that's anecdotal for you this morning. But belligerent, what the word means is warlike, aggressively hostile, engaged in battle. And I'm thinking that that is a perfect adjective for the kind of faith that David is embodying here in Psalm 27. Isn't, it's, a, it's a belligerent faith. It's a defiant faith. I think it should be applied to the kind of faith here in Psalm 27. The warfare, however, that this faith is engaged in is not against flesh and blood, but against the darkness that so ever, has ever just descended on you, where you, you just you can't see, you can't see out of your circumstances, you can't see out of your own head. This darkness, this lostness, this fear that we so often feel. Because of our circumstances. Here's, here's what I want to do going forward. Here's kind of a map for us in our, in our path ahead of us. Psalm 27, we see a defiant faith. And that defiant faith does four things. It's fueled by four things. There are four D's. Four D's, because I'm a pastor. Okay, Four D's for you to remember. First, defiant faith is directed towards something. Defiant faith is number two, delights in something. Defiant faith Number three, is desperate for something. And four, finally, defiant faith deconstructs something. Directed, delights, desperate, and deconstructs. I see these these four aspects of defiant faith as we walk through Psalm 27. Consider with me these four elements. First, defiant faith is directed toward the character of God. Look with me at Psalm 27, verse 1. First verse, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? David, surrounded by enemies, tempted to despair, with a siege of darkness and lostness settling in on him, directs his attention to the character of God. He feels anxiety, but the Lord is his light. He feels despair, but the Lord is his salvation. Question, where does your mind go when tragedy strikes? Where does your mind go when tragedy hasn't struck yet, but the fear of tragedy strikes? It's, everything's probably going to crumble. The worst case scenario, are, does your mind gravitate toward those things like mine? Or are you wonderfully oblivious to potentialities that are uh, available everywhere for this happening to my kid, or this happening to my kid, or getting this news back from the doctor? Where does your mind go? David fixes his mind not on his feelings, not on his circumstances, but on who God is. And who he's revealed himself to be. When when all you feel is darkness, friends, contemplate that God is 
light. When, when we feel numb and unfeeling and totally lost, God does not only save us, look what David says, he is salvation. He is, and he can be your salvation. I wish I picked a better um, D word than uh, directs because directs doesn't really just, or do justice to what David is doing here, does it? David not only directs his heart to the character of God, God is light, God is salvation, God is, is a stronghold. He not only directs his attention there, he's thinking through his systematic theology, right? He does more than that. He personalizes God is not just a light in general. God is not just salvation in general. He is not just a stronghold for those out there or for those other people. He is my light. He is my salvation. He is the stronghold of my life. It's as though David takes possession of God as such. God's not light in the abstract. He is my light. God's not salvation just for my parents or just for my pastor, but he is my salvation. See, friends, defiant faith personalizes and courageously owns God as he has revealed himself. For me, defiant faith relies on God to be for me what he has been for generations of of men and women in ages past. For centuries, men and women have taken God on his worth and have walked with him in the midst of their fears and anxieties. And David is saying, you can too. David directs his attention to the character of God and he, he personalizes it. He says, God is these things for me. And look what happens to him. He gets a little defiant. He gets a little bit aggressive. A confidence and a courage begin to animate him. You can see it happen to him. Look at, starting again at verse 1. See if you can put your finger on the notes of defiant faith. Maybe even underline them. The Lord, David says, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord's the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it's they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. Friends, I'm not asking for you to adopt a kind of cocky attitude that isn't true to who you are as a person, but... What, what David's calling us to in Psalm 27 is to get a little bit fed up with being bullied around by the stuff that has always held you captive, by the fears and the anxieties that have always held you in bondage. You get fed up with them the way you would get fed up with them. Does that make sense? I'm not asking you to adopt my cadence or my tone of voice, but what David's after here is a kind of a gritty attitude that believes the promises of God against all odds, against my experience, against the circumstances that I'm looking at right in front of me. Defiant faith is emboldened by the attributes of God because God is those things for me. 
He's light for me. He's salvation for me. Safety, refuge, shelter, a stronghold for me. Defiant faith says God has promised to be a light, a salvation, and a refuge to anyone who come to Him through faith in Jesus. Why can't that be true for me? Why does it only have to be for other people? Why not me? I can experience God. I can walk with God. And consider this as well. This wasn't just because David was going through difficult things from without. It wasn't, it wasn't only enemies from without that presented problems existentially for David. If you know anything about his story, you know two things. One is that inside, he, there was also friendly fire, right? That people from within the kingdom of God also hurt him, also presented problems for him, also threatened him, also wounded him. Number two, you know this from David's life. David's main enemy was not just the Philistines, and it was not just his son who betrayed him, it was also himself, right? David deeply disappointed himself. David deeply disappointed himself. David failed himself. And so, I, I, I feel, I, feel I, I can resonate with that. I think sometimes I think, man, I wish my greatest problem in life was that I was being persecuted for loving Jesus so much, but quite often, the greatest problem that I have in my life is not that noble uh, thing that I signed up for to follow Jesus. I'll come what may, I'll follow him. No, my greatest problem in life is me. My greatest problem in life is sometimes the friendly fire that I receive from those I thought I could trust within the family of God. And that's painful. But those are the very anxieties. Those are the very fears. Those are the very disappointments that David, that, that David fought back against with a defiant faith. So what that means is, friends, the thing that tempts you to despair today it doesn't disqualify you for defiant faith. It positions you quite nicely for it. It positions you perfectly for it. So number one, defiant faith is directed toward the character of God and it personalizes it. Personalizes it. God is these things for me. Second, defiant faith also delights in God. Specifically, it delights in in the presence of God, more than changed circumstances. Why do I say that? Look at verse 4 with me. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. Here it is. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing. Interesting phrase, right? Defiant faith wants one thing. I'm struck by the words one thing. Isn't it interesting that after what David opens the first three verses with, his, what he says next is, I've got one prayer request. You'd think he'd have several prayer requests. You'd think he'd have a whole list of prayer requests. Think about what David is up against right now. Evildoers, adversaries, and foes assail him to eat up his flesh. Armies encamp against him. War rises up against him. Father and mother forsake him. Death is looming, and he has one prayer request. 
(laughs) That's interesting to me, right? Because there's a lot going on in his life. There's one thing that matters more than anything else to David. And it's not just a prayer request. He actually describes it as the top priority in his life. Do you see what he says? One thing I've asked, there's the prayer, prayer request aspect. Then he says, that will I seek after. That thing will I pursue. He's not passive. He prioritizes and pursues one thing above all else. And that's enjoying the presence of God all the days of my life. Being enthralled with the beauty of the Lord and meditating on His ways in His place with His people. More than the money that I want to come. More than the job that I want to, that I want to get. More than the husband that I want to change. More than the wife I wish I had. More than the politi- politician I want voted in. More than the response of those I'm leading. More than the respect of my children. More than the well-being of my children. Defiant faith wants one thing. Defiant faith pursues one thing. Defiant faith seeks after one thing. A deep satisfaction in God. In God Himself through His Son. Jesus Christ. See, friends, defiant faith is fueled by this rugged pursuit of delight in God. For David, money wasn't enough. Sex wasn't enough. Wives weren't enough. Technology wasn't enough. Power and influence weren't enough. Comfort and luxury wasn't enough. A drama-free and conflict-free life wasn't enough for David. Friends, the kingdom of God advancing through him wasn't enough for David. Defiant faith is not satisfied with anything less than God Himself for me. Not for those around me. Not for those I'm merely connected to. But for me. One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in His temple. So the house of the Lord. What's that? The house of the Lord uh, it was a reference to the temple, which had not been built in David's time. Uh, so whether it was the tabernacle in David's time or the temple in Solomon's, the house of the Lord was where God's presence was known and experienced and enjoyed. As Isaac mentioned last week, as you move to the New Testament, the theme of the house of the Lord or the temple is transformed in three different ways. Real quick, three different ways. First, it's, it's transformed to become Jesus. It's transformed to become you, and it's transformed to become us. Okay, real quick. Jesus becomes the place of God's special presence. Jesus, it, God's special dwelling place is no longer off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in some structure, in some building, right? It's transformed so that Jesus can actually taunt the religious leaders in his day and say to them, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. And he's talking about himself. He's claiming to be now the place where God dwells uniquely, where God alone can be experienced powerfully. Jesus is saying, I'm it. You don't go to a place, you go to a person. I'm the temple. I'm the sacrifice. 
I'm the high priest. I am the place where you experience God's presence and all the benefits that come with it. Jesus is now the temple. What does that mean for Psalm 27? One thing I ask and one thing I desire, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and may inquire in that, that place, that temple. Second, okay, you, you, in the New Testament, this theme of temples transforms so that you become the temple. You are described, Christian, as the temple of the Holy Spirit. When your heart trusts in Jesus, you become joined to Him, and the Holy Spirit of God now dwells in you in some way that is unique, sacred, and holy. I don't get it. It's kind of nuts. But it's true. It's what, the, it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. So what does that mean? What does that mean for Psalm 27? One thing have I asked, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think one of the things that means is not only does Jesus become the object of your increasing fascination, but you enjoy time with him privately. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were made to enjoy God's special presence alone, in private, in secret. That's why Jesus encouraged his followers to pray in secret to get alone with God, do business with Him, enjoy Him. Third, right? Uh, Jesus becomes the temple, you become the temple, and we become the temple. There is some unique way in which we as the gathered church rally around the crucified and risen Christ. And as Isaac pointed out last week, when we synagogue together in some mysterious way, Jesus is with us. He's with us in some way that we can't manufacture. So what that means for Psalm 27 is, one thing I've asked, and that will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon His beauty, and to inquire in this place. What that means is that there is a prioritization of the church. There is a making of the church. I'm, I'm preaching to the choir, right? You're all here. But what does that mean? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me that the, the, the gathered community of believers becomes somehow central in my life? Is it, can it be defined as part of that one thing that you're after? One thing that you're prioritizing, that you're seeking, dwelling together with the people, enjoying the Holy Spirit of God through the gospel together as the church gathers I think it means prioritizing coming to church regularly. I think it, it means prioritizing getting here early and on time. I think it means engaging with one another. But we can do all of those things for the wrong reasons, can't we? We can come to church every week. We can get here early. We can be very active and very involved. And we can do it for us. What's the purpose of it all? Verse 4. To gaze upon the beauty of not of Ben, not of Riley leading worship, not of Ryan, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we're doing. Let's seek after God together, Summit. Now, look with me at what this delight in God, in God's place, together in community, look what it does. It does something to David. It, it causes something to well up inside of David. Defiant faith erupts out of this delight. Starting in verse 4, one thing I've asked, that will I seek, 
to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, with your, with your eyes still on the text, look at verse five. Look what, what immediately follows it. Look what happens to David. What David says, for he will hide me in, the, in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Uh, this is real, Right? When we feel tempted to despair, right? Defiant faith directs its attention on the character of God and defiant faith prioritizes a delight in God, but then something happens to us. Defiant faith explodes with a kind of confidence regarding our futures. David erupts with confidence in what God will be for him in his future particularly in the worst parts of his future. He will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. Like, when the stuff hits the fan, when it, when it gets as bad as it could possibly get, in the, the day of trouble, he's going to hide me in his shelter. And notice the repetition of the phrase, he will. He will hide me in his shelter. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. But that's not all. David's bright future even breaks into his present. It's not just when I retire and the kids are off on their own and they've got families and everyone's kind of situated, I'll be okay. I'll just, I'll, I'll go to church and things will be good then. No, that's not what David's saying at all. He's saying the future is so bright, it's somehow crashing into his present. Look what he says in verse 6. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy, and I will sing, and I will make melody to the Lord. David believes God for vindication, likely for a mess he got himself into, but he's so confident that God is going to see him through it. He's going to lift his head up above his enemies. He believes, he's, he has this confidence that his future is going to be characterized by singing songs of deliverance. There's going to be a lot of singing. There's going to be a lot of giving money. There's going to be a lot of feasting. And this is exactly what happens when people experience a rescue and abundant provision and uh, supernatural victory. David's still surrounded by his enemies. But he has the gall to believe that his head will be lifted up above them and that he'll just be singing songs of deliverance all his live-long days. That's pretty crazy. It's defiant faith. And it's fueled by delight in God through His Son. Third, defiant faith is not only directed towards God's character, it not only delights in God Himself, but is desperate for God's help alone. Friends, what I'm calling defiant faith out of Psalm 27 is not just for those in this room who are feeling particularly triumphant today. Right? We've got a little 
pep in their step. No, it's, it's, it's quite the opposite. This is actually tailor-made for those who don't feel triumphant right now. Look what David, what, look where he goes in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. So in verses 7 and following, we see a shift in David's demeanor. Could it be that, that this stanza represents those times those moments, those seasons in our lives, in David's life, where it feels like darkness has already won the day? Could it be that this stanza is representative of all, of all those times where David, he simply feels numb and stuck? You notice this in the way he's talking. It's almost like this, he feels disconnected from himself. It's like he's having an out-of-body experience. He's saying, Lord, you said to seek you. And I'm just kind of looking in from the outside. I'm trying to seek you. I'm doing everything I can, but I still feel forsaken. I still feel abandoned. I still feel like you're going to wipe your hands of me in anger. Has anyone ever been there? This is the way David's feeling right now. But still, friends, it's it's in these moments that defiant faith might not have the energy to flip through their systematic theology and consider all of the attributes and the character of God and personalize them. Defiant faith might not have the emotional energy to delight in God, even get into the car to go to church, but defiant faith in this moment, in verses 7 and following, has the ability to simply cry out, Help! Help! In these moments, help is the cry of defiant faith. And even here, we see a note of defiance as well, limping though it be. Look at verse 10 with me. I mean, David is totally, he's just enmeshed. He's, he's, He's mired in darkness. But even there, we see this, this note of defiance rising its head. Though my father and my mother have forsaken me. The, the people in life who anyone can count on to never forsake them, even they have let, I am all by myself, but the Lord will take me in. We hear this defiant faith in Habakkuk as well. Ben preached this a few weeks ago. Isn't this the same strand of defiant faith Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, marriage doesn't seem to be changing, there's no money in the bank, there's no food for my kids, there's no diagnosis is changing from the doctor, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, 
is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the heights. We hear this, this defiant faith as well in Job's limping response. He's lost everything precious to him. He's lost his, his, his property. He's lost his kids. He's lost his health. And he declares, naked I came from the mother, my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. As we sang earlier this morning, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Friends, defiant faith is directed to God's character and it personalizes it. Defiant faith delights in God Himself. And defiant faith, when you feel absolutely lost and far gone in darkness, defiant faith is desperate for God's help. You're not disqualified from defiant faith. Your position for it. Fourth, and finally, when we feel alone, lost, and fearful, defiant faith, it deconstructs our entire way of living. Friends, if, if you don't have the mentality of everything in your life is up for grabs, then, then you're not embodying this kind of defiant faith. Every one of us in this room, whether we've been a Christian for five years, five months, or 50 years, we all have uh, SOPs, right? We all have standard operating procedures. It's the way we do things around here. We all have our own personal cultures of the way we handle ourselves and the, the way we relate to the world around us, to ourselves, and to people that we interact with, to, to, to our family members. We all have ways of doing things. We all have ways of living, Defiant faith is the, is the soft and the open heart that lays them all on the chopping block. Everything is up for dismantling. Everything is up for deconstruction. Defiant faith relearns how to live from the ground up. Where am I getting this from? Look with me at verse 11 in Psalm 27. David says, teach me your way, O Lord. And lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen up against me and they breathe out violence. Maybe this is where you're at right now. The stakes have gotten so high in your life. You've, you've messed things up so bad or there is so much opposition, there is so much challenges that you've got, your heart has finally gotten to the place where it's softened and you've said, Okay, okay, not my way anymore. Your way. I'm ready to be taught. I'm ready to be led. I'm ready to relearn what it means to be human. I and mean, we often say things like it's just the way I am or it's just the way I was raised or it's my personality type or I'm just a cynical person. But all of that is off the table for defiant faith. We, we relearn from the ground up how to be me. And that's what it means actually to be a disciple. If we, if we don't embody this kind of radical deconstruction, we can't even claim to be a disciple of Jesus. Because what it means to be a disciple is to be a learner. That's what the word means. 
Then in verse 13, this soft openness to God's way erupts again in what could only be the epitome of defiant faith. Do you, do you see that in verse 13? This is incredible. Likely facing the threat of death itself, David defies the grave and all of its threats, and he declares in verse 13, I believe, I don't care what I see, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I believe it. Defiant faith calls the the cemetery and gets that put on their headstone. Put me in the ground. Here's what I believe. I'm going to look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Without a single circumstance changed, David defies his circumstances. David defies his feelings with the confident conviction that his future is filled with good things, that God is not holding anything back from him, that God is not being stingy with him, that there is going to be an abundance of good that God pours out on David. Friends, remember this. The resurrection life promised you and me through the gospel of the Lord Jesus wasn't revealed to David with the same clarity that we enjoy. These things were fuzzy to him. What did the future actually hold for us after the grave? He wasn't certain. How much more should we defy our miserable circumstances with confidence in the promise of the gospel? How much more should we talk back to our feelings that bully us, to the temptations that lie to us with the promise of resurrection life from the grave, a new heavens and a new earth where David's son is now David's Lord and he's ruling over us, seeing to it that we are going to experience his kindness and his goodness in ever-increasing doses for ages to come. Like, that's our hope. That's our future. Your future is incredibly bright, and there is all the reason in the world to let that bright future crash into your present through defiant faith. So, friends, we've seen that defiant faith is is those four things, right? It's directed to God's character. It delights in the presence of God. It's desperate for the help of God, and it deconstructs all of our old ways of living. Isn't that what we're all doing here? I mean, if, if that's what we're not engaged in as we gather together in community, what are we doing? We are repenting. We're turning. We're, man, I, I have lived this way my whole life. I'm going to change. I disconnect from people that, that I feel don't value me or, or don't respect me. That's, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm changing. I'm going in a new direction. I'm moving towards those people and not away from them. Amen? We're, we're going to deconstruct together. And we're going to relearn what it means to be human around Jesus Christ. This, I believe, friends, is the spiritual psychology of those men and women that we admire so deeply. Those battle-scarred folks, those heroes of the faith, that, that cloud of witnesses that we so profoundly respect See, David in Psalm 27 has just given us a window in to that secret life, those secret transactions with God. Some of you still may be thinking, David was special. That's not for me. This, this can't be my experience of God. If there is any doubt that this defiant faith can be yours as well, 
would you pause for a moment and seriously look with me at the way the psalm ends? Look with me at verse 14. Do you notice a change in the way David, he's just talking about himself the whole time. This is what I'm doing. This is what I'm doing. And then he turns and he says in verse 14, it's like he looks up. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It's, it's as though David knows, like, like a dad reading the Bible, he knows kind of his kids paying attention to what he's doing. And, he, and all of a sudden he knows that, that there are eyes on him as he's having these secret, sacred moments with God. And he, he, he sees us and he looks up and rather than retreating for us and hogging this experience for himself, he opens his arm up and he invites us in and he says, here, this is for you too. You wait for the Lord. You be strong. You Put your guard down. Let your heart take courage and step over the line maybe for the first time to defiant faith there's this david here is he's and he's inviting us in and friends what i'm wanting to tell you what i believe is happening right now is god through david's invitation is with us right now and he's inviting men and women in this room to put their faith in his son in ways that maybe you and I never have. He's God himself is calling us to a defiant faith. Amen? I think that's what's going on in Psalm 27. Um, Psalm 27 has been just a treasure to me. A water in, in a desert, a, a life preserver in an ocean where I'm drowning. And I, I so want it to be that for you too. I really do. And so, uh, may it be so. Let's pray. Worship team, come back up. Let's ask God for help. Father, uh, Defiant Faith is desperate for your help. And Lord, I am desperate for your help. Would, would you help those in this room, maybe who feel um, disconnected from themselves, disconnected from you, bullied by their fears and anxieties and circumstances, by a kind of cynicism that has just been with them their whole life. Father, give your people this morning. I pray you grant faith to your people so that we would rise up and lay hold of your promises for ourselves. Lord, may your people in this room leave this place and go and walk with you in secret in ways that maybe we never have. Do it, Lord, for your own namesake. Do it for the glory of your Son. We pray this all in his name. Amen.